the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. And we're coming to you from a sort of pre-spring Britain where you could be wearing shorts one day <laughs> and the next day it's pouring down with snow. But like, that's what it's like in the British Isles, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you because I think we talked about it last week on the podcast, didn't we? There was there was moments where I was kind of lying in the back garden in a t-shirt, soaking up the sun, and 24 hours later was in a kind of you know thermal coat because it was snowing. It's bizarre, really bizarre. It, I know yeah. our weather's unpredictable, but it's not usually that unpredictable. No, that's that's right. For the last couple of days, we've had the the wood burner on from about eight in the morning. And it's been sort of breathtakingly cold outside. When you open the door, take the dog out, you 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 have to do a deep breath. And yeah, I, that is apparently the new normal in Britain in the early days of April. Well, Ben, maybe we're cursed. Oh, and I, okay. And I say that, that's a nice segue I did there. Because today I want to look into curses. I thought you were doing a segue. I like yeah, it. See, okay, see, fine. See what I did? Yeah, <laughs> I did, yeah. yes. <laughs> now, uh, I'm not going to look at stories of, you know, strange witches or wizards putting a curse on you. Although I do think that's an interesting subject, which we'll probably cover at another, in another episode. So think of this one as almost a warm-up to those. This is more about can places objects or even numbers be cursed so i guess this touches on maybe a couple of episodes we've done previously which uh if you've not heard them out there it's worth checking out we did one on objects of evil where we included things like um we did the annabelle doll um we did james dean's car which was famously cursed uh we also reminds me a bit what we're going to talk today about the episode we did on luck about whether luck exists um so i want to see if curses if things can be cursed objects places or even numbers or whether it's all just in our mind um let's start with probably the most famous and well known the curse of tutankhamun I never know how to say Tutankhamun. Is it Tutankhamun or Tutankhamun? Yeah, it's hard to know where to emphasise the the vowel, isn't it? I would say Tutankhamun, Tutankhamun. That's what I'd say. All right, we'll go with that. Actually, I'm going to go with King Tut. It's probably easier. Um, (laughs) So let's go back to the start. So on November the 4th, 1922, a team of archaeologists led by Howard Carter discovered a step that marked the entrance to King Tut's tomb. When the tomb itself was discovered on November the 26th, 1922, it had been undisturbed for more than 3,000 years, and many believed the pharaoh unleashed a powerful curse of death and destruction upon all who dared disturb his eternal sleep. The legend of the curse gained worldwide attention, uh, and I guess even to this day stirs up speculation. Uh, And it's certainly captured our collective imagination, inspired directly or indirectly, books, films, 
games, even slot machines. I think one of the most popular slot machine is a Tutankhamun one. Um, I guess we'd never have films like The Mummy and all those Hammer horror films that we used to love as a kid. I don't know if you loved them, but I absolutely did. Oh, yeah, I did um, love them, yeah. So let's look a bit about where the legend comes from and how it took hold. So I guess the whole thing revolves around the number of people involved in the discovery and uh, excavation of King Tut's tomb and the strange mishaps that befell them. So there are many people associated with the discovery of the tomb who died uh, in a short period afterwards, but let's focus on some of the main players. So let's start with George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. So this is the man who financed the excavation of King Tut's tomb. Uh, And he was the first to succumb to the supposed curse. Lord Carnarvon accidentally tore open a mosquito bite while shaving and ended up dying of blood poisoning shortly afterwards. This occurred a few months after the tomb was opened and six weeks after the press started reporting about the mummy's curse, which was thought to afflict anyone associated with disturbing the mummy. Legend has, this is spooky, legend has it that when Lord Carnarvon died, all the lights in his house mysteriously went out. It, it's also quite strange that such a small injury caused such a, a large effect. Mm. yeah and yeah definitely definitely well it gets weirder with uh with his family because uh lord carnarvon's half-brother is said to have suffered from king tut's curse merely because he was related to the lord so uh his half-brother was a guy called audrey herbert and he was born with a degenerative eye condition and became totally blind late in life. This shows how medics, medical things has moved on. A doctor suggested that his rotten infected teeth were somehow interfering with his vision, and Herbert had every single tooth pulled from his head in an effort to regain his sight. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I know you get ear, nose and throat, but I've never heard sight thrown in at the same time, right? No, and that that is quite a traumatic thing to go through, having all your teeth pulled. Yeah. Well, it got even more traumatic because because of the surgery, uh, he died of sepsis just five months after the death of his cursed brother. So even though he, Audrey Herbert, sorry, Aubrey Herbert wasn't involved directly with the... uh, king tut's tomb because the, i guess the the rumor goes that because he was lord Carvenon's brother he was affected by it as well so let's move let's move on to bruce ingham so howard carter the archaeologist who discovered the tomb gave a paperweight to his friend ingham as a gift the paperweight consisted of a mummified hand wearing a bracelet that was supposedly inscribed with the phrase cursed be he who moves my body. I don't, it, I'm not sure whether it was a real mummified hand or it was uh, a, a replica of one. Um, but either way, it's quite a spooky gift to give. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think a, a dead hand is something that you should 
yeah. be be giving away freely. Yeah, it's not it's not what you expect on Christmas Day or your birthday when you open up that package. Surprise! Yeah, hey, hey. <laughs> you know you're going to have to send that one back to Amazon now, aren't you, Ben? <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> well, not after Ingham received the gifts from Howard Carter, uh, his house burnt down. It burned to the ground, and when he tried to rebuild it, it was then destroyed by a flood. Which I guess I know it's not biblical in 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 the in the traditional sense, but it has those major kind of biblical themes, doesn't it? Of floods and fire, and you know, which is some you know connected. I, I guess more connected to those epic movies that uh, were yes. probably made at our parents' time. You know, those four-hour ones that are often on on a Sunday. Um, apparently, yeah. Egyptians. Um, so let's move on to another person who was involved, George J. Gould. Gould was a wealthy American financier and railroad executive who visited the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1923. He fell sick almost immediately afterwards. He never really recovered and died of pneumonia a few months later. Then we have Hugh Evelyn White. Evelyn White, a British archaeologist, visited Tut's tomb and may have helped evacuate the site. After witnessing the deaths of about two dozen of his fellow excavators uh, by 1924, Evelyn White hung himself, but not before writing, allegedly in his own blood, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. That's, That's pretty spooky. But yeah, it is. And, and and I guess because he died, nobody really knows what he meant. Yeah, but that that's straight out of a Hammer horror film, isn't it? That you know, writing it in blood and the being taken over by the curse. It's that's that's movie gold, right? Oh, of course, yes. It, it feels though that maybe <clears throat> like the alternative explanation is that. Um, I don't know how to put it. He was just having a tough time and Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting was... you say that. I will we've got a few more of the main players to go through. Um, okay. But then I have got a, a more skeptic view of the okay. curse coming up. So it's good you picked up on that point. So let's talk about Aaron Ember. He's a he was an American Egyptologist and was friends with many of the people who were present when the tomb was opened, including Lord Carnarvon. Ember died in 1926 when his house in Baltimore burnt down less than an hour after he and his wife hosted a dinner party. He could have exited the house safely, but his wife encouraged him to save a manuscript he had been working on while she fetched their son. Sadly, they and the family's maid died in the catastrophe. The name of Ember's manuscript that he was sent back in the house to recover was called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Hmm. Again, classic movie stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and the the Book of the Dead, it, it like you said before, it comes up in quite a lot of um, like law uh, belonging yeah. to movies, like the Mummy and and things yeah. like that and pretty much that that 
you know, apart from the fact it's got a mummy in it, it's really built around the Book of the Dead, that film, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and you're right, It's it's it, they are the classic tropes, aren't they? Which I guess a lot of it has come from this actual story, this real-life story. Um, we've then got uh, Richard Bethel. Bethel was Lord Carnarvon's secretary and the first person behind Carter to enter the tomb. He died in 1929 under suspicious circumstances. He was found smothered in his room at an elite London gentleman's club. Soon after, the Nottingham Post mused, the suggestion that the Honourable Richard Bethel had come under the curse was raised last year when there was a series of mysterious fires at his home where some of the priceless finds from Tutankhamun's tomb were stored. So, again, this is a few years after. So, yeah, seven years after the tomb was originally opened, but he was allegedly the second person to enter it. Again, that kind of suits with those movie tropes, doesn't it? The person who'd removed these artefacts, taken them back to England, had them in his home, you know, removed the burial place of Tutankhamun. You can see how, how that narrative gets weaved in to the story yeah absolutely uh i've got two more of these and then we'll get on some skeptic stuff so this one's an interesting one so archibald douglas reed this proves that you didn't have to be one of the excavators or expedition backers to fall victim to the curse reed a radiologist merely x-rayed tut before the mummy was given to museum authorities he became sick the next day and was dead three days later. Which, yeah, disturbing. Either disturbing the piece or he wasn't very good at x-rays is probably the explanation, right? What, what was his actual cause of death? Is it known? Uh, it doesn't say. He just he, it said, kind of feels like a mystery illness that he immediately got and was dead within three days. That is a but I guess that is a swift illness, yeah. But I guess if you were playing around with X-rays around that time, you know, I don't, I, yes. you know, when I go to yeah. the dentist now and they take a little X-ray with their high-tech equipment, they seem to go about three hundred yards down the road when they do it. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so it's completely possible that um, he had something much worse wrong with him up until those last minutes like you know he x-rays obviously are very dangerous in terms of like um causing cancer and those sorts of things so maybe it was an undetected thing and it came out at the last minute that's completely viable yeah and then the last one is it's not really a death story necessarily but uh, James Henry Breasted, another famous Egypt- Egyptologist of the day, was working with Carter when the tomb was opened. Shortly thereafter, he allegedly returned home to find that his pe- pet canary had been eaten by a cobra, and the cobra was still occupying the cage. Since the cobra is the symbol of the Egyptian monarchy and the motif that kings wore on their headdresses to represent protection, this was a rather ominous sign. He did die in 1935, but that's a fair amount of time afterwards. Uh, and again, his only connection was 
that they try and tie in is that it happened after he'd had a trip to Egypt and then he died thereafter. So, so I mean, there were there were more deaths associated with the opening of the tomb, but they're probably the most uh, they're probably the A-listers, <laughs> if you excuse the pun. But there are a few. Let's let's look at a more sceptical version of this, right? Mm-hmm. So, let's start with the main man who discovered the tomb, Howard Carter. He was the first through the door. It was his kind of expedition, uh, or dig, let's say, that discovered it. You would have thought if anyone was going to be plagued by King Tut's curse, it would be him, right? But he never had any mysterious, inexplicable illnesses. His house never fell victim to any disasters. Uh, He died of lymphoma lymphoma at the age of 64, so a, a ripe old age, really, for those times. Um, his uh, his tombstone says, "May your spirit live. May you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, which is a, 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 a reference to Egypt, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness." So he obviously died a happy man. Um, so he wasn't affected by any of this strange curse business, which doesn't seem to make sense to me. Okay, no, I. I understand, yeah. So let's then have a think about numbers. So I found this really interesting study that was done by the British Medical Journal. This was a study they did in 2002 on survival rates of 44 Westerners who Carter had identified as being in Egypt when the tomb was examined because the curse apparently was not said to affect native Egyptians, only you know, the Western visitors who were, uh, I guess, taking, in, in locals' eyes, stealing from the tombs. So a really clever mm-hmm. study. They compared the mean age of death for 25 of the people who were present at the opening or examination of the tomb with twenty over 20 others who weren't there. So if you have 25 who were there... And the comparison is like a control group who were in Egypt at the time but had nothing to do with Tut's tomb. The study found no significant association between potential exposure to the mummy's curse and survival, as well as no sign at all that those who were exposed were more likely to die within a 10-year time period. Which I think is really interesting. And it shows you something how, how these... Uh, curses and myths can get going where actually if you do the math it's all the people I've mentioned and more it's not weird for them to die you might say there were some strange events that uh, accompanied their deaths but again if you'd looked at the control group you'd probably come across some weird stuff as well right yeah absolutely so so it sort of feels like um like all of their deaths they're not really related it's not like they've all burned in a house fire or you, you know dri- driven off a cliff they've all died in different ways yeah yeah uh, and some of them are their deaths are due to illnesses probably brought on by age and others are accidents and from what you're saying there it is 
um, largely within the what one would expect from that sector of the population in terms of death by accident, death by disease. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, There's nothing right. statistically... I mean, admittedly, it's quite a small sample group, but there's nothing st- statistically that would suggest there's anything weird going on. So um, the thing that brings these together is the fact that you get this sample group and they're ring-fenced by the fact that they've worked on these movies and that is the thing that ignites the intrigue in people's minds. That feels yeah. like where we're going with this. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny you mentioned earlier about... Um, Lord Carnarvon's death, you know, cutting himself shaving with the small mosquito bite. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of rumours that that's been linked to toxins within Tut's tomb. So, and that may be true, because some ancient mummies have been shown to carry potential dangerous species of mould. And the tomb walls have been covered in, have been known to be covered in bacteria that can attract, attack the respiratory system. But they, this is quite interesting about Carnival. Again, it shows how these, these myths and mythology can build. That Carnival was chronically ill before he ever set foot near King Tut's tomb. And he didn't die until months after his first exposure. So if there were toxins or anything like that, it, it should have done for him much earlier. But I think the interesting part of that is he was an ill man before he even knew about King Tut's tomb. So him dying of some infection, whether it's from a mosquito bite or a, a cut or whatever, isn't that strange, really, for a man who was very ill in those times, right? Yeah, yeah. I think probably one of the things that um, sort of taints our general view on things like this is the fact that we live in an age where antibiotics are you know yeah par for the course and if you get an infection you go to the doctor they give you a course of antibiotics and you're fine whereas what you're describing these people live before that age so it's not necessarily an age even before penicillin it's an age before you have things like in the UK at least universal healthcare, and in the rest of the world who doesn't have that you're talking about um, health insurance. So there's many reasons why people don't get these uh, treatments. It isn't just that the fact they don't exist, which I think is quite possible for a number of these things, but also it would be down to expense or lack of knowledge, those sorts of things. And that turns into, once you pair that with the sort of spookiness of what they were involved with um be the bit a film or be an excavation that's when a myth starts to take hold yeah absolutely and also on that theme that you're talking about i mean we mentioned it earlier you know one of the guys who's suffering from late life blindness goes to a doctor who says oh that's to do with your teeth i'll pull them all out and he ends up dying as the process right yeah so that shows you know even if you're were a well-to-do gentleman in those days it doesn't mean you're going to get great medical care right nhs or not no nhs or not no that that's right and and while you were 
talking about that, it, it just occurred to me that uh, both my grandparents on my mother's side, they had their teeth removed because that was just a thing that you did. So right. by the time that I knew them, so we're talking like from when I can remember, which is like the early 1980s, I guess. Um, my grandparents who it feel it feels sort of like they were quite old at the time, but they weren't really. They were in their late 50s. They both had false teeth that they kept in glasses by the side of their bed. Yeah. And then when you look into it, it was because it was the received wisdom at the time that you had your teeth removed and you had not, false not teeth. just your wisdom teeth no exactly <laughs> no it was the whole thing well and it's it's like ulcers isn't it you know stomach ulcers they used to operate on you know yes you know, yes it, so and that's probably in our parents lifetime right that's not yeah. even grandparents lifetime yeah uh, yeah no completely yeah no the 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 knowledge about stomach ulcers has really sort of accelerated in the last sort of 10 years. There's yeah. nothing paranormal about it, but it is weird. But <laughs> yeah. like when, when you go back to like you, my grandparents who like, I would say they probably, I think it's probably safe to say they had their teeth, their teeth fully removed in the late 1950s, because that was a thing that you did. But the risk of getting infection and there being like you know terrible side effects from it weren't really considered it was always thought like oh it's much worse if you have you know a bad tooth yeah. uh, and it was a, a really different way of thinking right it's, it's completely different to thinking well no you should <laughs> you should clean them properly and look yeah. after them properly yeah. it's a it's a very peculiar thing and and i think perhaps one of like that probably plays into these myths it's the difference between how we perceive health and longevity today yeah. knowing yeah. like what we do now and then those people in those times who were subject to the, you know the received wisdom of the time well it's interesting you say that ben because you know certainly the curse of king tart has captured our imagination and as you said started a long tradition and tropes around the curse especially egypt and mummies but weirdly that still continues to this day in fact it hit the news again in the last few weeks in newspapers and on social media so i'm going to read you uh an article from this was in the it's in been in lots of publications but this is in the daily mail on the 29th of march so a few weeks ago um and it's about the mummy's curse continuing and it's because a procession a procession to move 22 royal mummies from one museum in egypt to another has coincided with a number of strange incidents last week that some are blaming on the pharaoh's curse. Officials are planning to transport the mummies from the Egyptian Museum in Tahir Square to the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization in Fustat uh, on the April the 3rd, which would include the remains of King Ramesses II, 
I'm going to have some real pronunciation errors on this one. I'm just warning you all. And Amos Nefertari, who was his queen. So news of the parade of mummies was followed by a number of disasters, including, and we talked about it the other week, the giant ship that blocked the Suez Canal. There was also a fatal train accident and fires across the country. Social media users are blaming such events on the curse of the pharaohs that say death will come on the quick wings for those who disturb the king's peace. Archaeologists are rebuking the claims, stating that none of the ancient tombs were harmed during evacuations and the occurrence of these accidents is just fate or coincidence. Yeah, I mean, it goes on this article to talk about mouldy roofs and coffins that leak ammonia and various bits and pieces. But it, it, it shows that the curse or the idea of the curse still holds traction today. I mean, this has been in the last two weeks. So it, it's sort of like there's a, there's a superstition which remains, which is an attempted explanation for things which probably do have another rational explanation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and it kind of, I guess it suits the narrative that we all want to buy into as well, right? It's more, mm. it, it's interesting, it's risky, it's exciting, I guess. Yes, yes. And, well, the exciting thing about it is that it has, you know, a, a very obvious paranormal implication if you say that it is a curse rather than some yeah. sort of naturally occurring malady or disfortune well i think that's the interesting thing because that is i said it uh, at the start of this it wouldn't be we wouldn't be talking about you know witches witches or wizards who had pronounced a curse on someone but actually that is the general wisdom of the curse of king tut isn't it there's all that thing of you know he who disturbs my tomb will be cursed forevermore but actually there was no such message ever found at the tomb so that is an invention that has come with the mythology around it that somehow there were messages within or outside the tomb that warned of a curse or a plague if anyone disturbed the burial place that's 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 the total fiction that came later yeah and and that feels like something that western minds would create when you're faced with um a sort of uh, i guess a culture that is so alien to what you can readily understand yeah. that you can very easily say you know, one can very easily say on a Western point of view, oh, well, any maladies that occur, that's due to this curse. And yeah. it, I mean, in in many ways, that is that's a troublesome thing to comprehend because it just means that uh, those explorers and those um, archaeologists are making things up on behalf of a culture which mm. you know isn't right or true but uh, yeah i 
there's a well, romanticism, it, I guess. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because that romanticism also translates into a lot of UFO mythology as well, right? That's centered around Egypt and the building of the pyramids and the positioning yeah. of the pyramids and true, the hieroglyphics, yeah. you know. So it's a well-trodden path and I wonder if whether you're hitting on something there that is that connected to, you know, Howard Carter and people like him who discovered and found these amazing tombs and artifacts and almost captured everyone's imagination with the wonder of it all that we want to tie something in especially because the egyptians were such an advanced civilization for the time yeah yeah that 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 does make sense and there would be i guess an imperative to imbue these discoveries with you know elements of mysticism it's not nearly so exciting to sort of you know just tell it as it is if there is some mysterious curse that must be avoided then that makes things a lot more interesting it grabs headlines and like we often say you can probably follow the money to find a reason why people would talk about that and also i think around egypt and places at that time politics of it right empire and all those type of things is all connected as well with that it's fascinating though yeah but that but you know that's certainly kicked off the the concept and the tropes around the idea of the curse egypt mummies all that stuff but let let's move on from those who had a close shave with death to those who seem to have been cursed by a close shave have you heard of the Gillette curse of 2009? I definitely haven't, <laughs> but I definitely want to know what it is. Well, Ben, we're not talking... We are Sorry, Ben, we are talking about Gillette razor blades, believe it or not. Um, okay. So I'm sure Gillette razor blades are available all around the world, but uh, if you do live in a country where they don't, where it's not a brand that exists, they are one of, if not the biggest razor blade, men's razor blade and, and women's razor blade company in the UK, right? In Britain and, and probably yeah, across Europe. I would say so, America. yeah. Um, so this is about Gillette razor blades and the fact that when the brand partners with sports stars, it's not always the best a man can get. You see what I did there? <laughs> that, that, that was, was very blood. subtle yes. yeah see what i did um so this is really about sporting legends who have become the face of or brand ambassadors for gillette razor blades and have suffered a raft of negative pr and poor performance particularly during the year of 2009 for some reason so this all kicked off with football legend, uh, I guess soccer legend for our American listeners, Thierry Henry, who became a brand ambassador for Gillette. Then in 2009 World Cup finals, he upset many fans, especially in Ireland, after his handball goal, which was not spotted 
by officials put Ireland out of the World Cup finals. Um, and there was even uh, a song released called Thierry Henry's A Cheat, which is not the greatest name for a song, but I guess it does what it says on the tin. So he signed as a brand ambassador for Gillette and then there was this controversy in 2009 World Cup finals where he upset football fans, especially Irish fans, uh, who accused him of cheating. In the same month, another of Gillette's brand ambassadors, golfer Tiger Woods' career stalled after a knee injury. He then received negative press for losing his temper at a tournament, then went on to have a messy divorce and bad press from salacious stories about his mistress. The very same year, football stroke soccer legend David Beckham, a former Gillette famous face, was booed by LA Galaxy fans on his return to the club after a loan spell with Italian club Milan. And to complete our clean-shaved lineup, tennis legend Roger Federer, for whom the cut of the Gillette curse got him on November 2009 when the undefeated tennis ace was knocked off the number one spot by a relative underdog. And it's just so weird that these were the main faces, marketing faces of Gillette. I think Beckham was no longer part of it when he got booed, but he was a former face. But I, I remember seeing adverts and press press adverts with Tiger Woods, Thierry Henry and Federer all together you know, advertising Gillette razors. And then in 2009, all of them were hit with something. Yes, that's true. I do remember that, yes. So I don't know if that is a curse or just a bad year for the Gillette marketing department. So I guess you have to look at statistics and and also where this curse may have come from. I mean... Yeah, there's no, like, there's no, uh, I don't know whether their competitors, Wilkinson Sword, basically got some, some, uh, some, some priest or wicked witch to curse their competitors. That's all I can think of. There's no, there's no kind of background about why the curse occurred. There's no great backstory. It just seemed to happen. It feels much more likely that it was a sort of um a coincidence that pretty much like we've spoken about before it's a coincidence that because all of these people are doing this one similar task that uh it appears to have um you, you know some sort of relevance and there's a reason for it whereas in fact it is just how it works in the general community of humans. But also we know how journalists can work sometimes. It's yeah. almost like two of these things come together and somebody in the office has gone, oh, it's funny that two of the faces of Gillette have gone through a bad time. Like, Hold on a second, let's have a look. David Beckham, well, he was booed for coming, but you know what I mean? It's not, some of yes. these are not, Federer was going to lose at some point but it makes a good story and is one that can kind of keep a story rolling on, right? It does make a good story, but also it's a pretty weak curse. Like, yeah, yeah. oh, you're going to get booed? Oh, no, yeah. don't boo me. 
Uh, I I used to work round the corner from Gillette, and I always so they've got a fairly grand building in West London. And I used to walk past their building pretty much every day on my way to find some lunch. And it it always did not only just feel sort of grand, but it felt like that there was, um, I don't know, there was uh, something that was grand about their existence. They were formed from, you know, a really innovative idea to make these disposable razors and they were really drawing on that and and there was tales told that if you got in there if you're a member of staff you could go and buy cut price razors from their oh. internal shop i know exactly because razors because they are, they're not cheap i don't know where they are how they, are, not they are in cheap. the other parts of the world but no. it's better to have a beard in britain but the the thing that really sticks in my mind is they have a tall clock and uh, on my way to work, you can see this clock from about three quarters of a mile away at least. And it's down a really busy road. And every time I had an early meeting in this job working, I was working for um, a television company, which is based just around the corner. Uh, that clock was the herald of me going, oh, my God, i got seven minutes and three <laughs> traffic lights to get through. So it wouldn't surprise me if some of my ill feelings towards that clock had caused some of so this. You're, uh, you're responsible for the Gillette It's It's very possible. It's, is it around is the it same time? Was it 2009? Uh, I finished working at that company in 2006. So maybe there was, yeah, a, there was an over, uh, overlay. A, a delayed... Uh, reaction to it yeah yeah wow. all, all, all i can say is just around the corner from it was a um uh, a little italian deli on the side of the a4 road which is a busy road and they did really really good spicy pasta takeaway so like yeah that's <laughs> that's my memory of gillette well, it's funny because I've got I've got a slightly connected Thierry Henry story as well. So uh, I was working for a company, and I'm a big Arsenal fan, football fan, soccer fan, and Thierry Henry was legendary Arsenal player. Uh, and I managed to get some tickets to the director's box of Arsenal for a game, and I went. And Thierry Henry came in. So it was me, my wife, and a friend's son who was a massive Thierry Henry fan. And you're not supposed to approach the players and ask for autographs, but my wife said, oh, forget all that. He needs to sign, you know, this, this is a big fan. So she went up and kind of forced him to sign an autograph, which he, he did. He was quite, he was good. He was nice about it. And, and then we all sat down, about to eat, and... Someone said, oh, um, Arsene Wenger, who, for those who don't know, is was the manager, or I guess you'd call him a coach in America, of Arsenal. And really, for a long time, he was their manager and brought them to glory from a kind of mediocre team, arguably, to one of the 
best teams in Britain, winning multiple premiership titles and cups. So very famous and been with the club a long time. So a rumour went round that sometimes Arsene Wenger comes up and does a little talk to the people in the director's box before the game. So we all got very excited about this, apart from my wife, who wasn't particularly a massive football fan. So she said, oh, I'm just going to nip downstairs for a cigarette. And I said, yeah, but you're going to miss Arsene Wenger. And she went, oh, it's fine, it's fine. So she went out and then she managed to come back and Arsene Wenger hadn't arrived, which was good. So she sat down and then the great man, Arsene Wenger, walks in. And we all go, oh my God, he's here, he's here, he's here. And my wife says, oh, that's the lovely old man I was talking to in the lift. Ooh. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, what do you mean? The light? You, you were talking to Arsene Wenger? She went, yeah, she said, who is he? And I said, oh, who is he? And she, I went, well, what did he say? He said, well, I was coming from the ground floor. He got off, got on and in the lift on the first floor. He said, are you going to the director's lounge? And I said, yes, this is my wife said, yes. And she said, oh, it's really nice here, isn't it? And he said, yeah, it's lovely. And then she said to him, what do you do here? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, I just, you know, try and keep things running. So, And then when I pointed out, she was, oh, when he said I try and keep things running, I thought he was like some kind of caretaker or something. That kept the place <laughs> oh, that's very humble of him. I like that. Yeah, he, she said he was lovely, really, really nice. But I, I, as a... As an Arsenal fan and kind of Arsenal Wenger is a bit of a god, I was just had my head in my hands. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Oh, well, like, I think that speaks volumes of his character. I think yeah. that's a good thing. Indeed. Well, let's move on from sports to music. Uh, and whether a number, or more specifically an age, can be cursed. So I want to talk about the 27 Club curse, which you may have heard of, Ben. So, I have, I have, yes. So this is the uh, this the idea of the twenty seven club curse first got traction in the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, with the death of a number of prominent musicians, most notably Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison. I mean, there were a lot of others, but I'll focus on them because they're the biggest ones. What connects them, apart from being rock icons? is that they all died at the age of 27. So Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones died in 1969. Jones is said to have mixed alcohol, drugs, then died after diving into his swimming pool. Although there are a number of other theories and conspiracy theories around his death and claims he was actually murdered. But either way, he died aged 27. Then Jimi Hendrix died in the early hours of the 18th of September 1970, again through a mixture of drugs and alcohol. Said he took nine sleeping pills, which didn't sound like much, but the kind of pills he was taking, half of one was enough to knock you out solidly for eight hours deep sleep. So he died aged 27, not long after Brian Jones. Janis Joplin then died aged 27 in a Hollywood hotel room on the 4th of October 1970 after taking heroin and hitting her head on a table as she fell to the floor. So it was after these deaths that the age 27 and the idea of a curse started to fall. And that was reinforced by the death of Jim Morrison in July of 1971. 
The Doors frontman died of a drug-induced heart attack. Uh, again, age 27. To add to the idea of the curse, three years later, Morrison's girlfriend, Pamela Corson, died of a heroin overdose. And you guessed it, she was also age 27. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole raft of... You know, iconic is the only way to describe them, musicians. Then there there are a ton of other musicians around the same time who died age 27. Artists, actors also said to have been cursed by that age, including blues legend Robert Johnson, canned heat guitarist Al Blind Al Wilson, Dave Alexander of the Stooges. But it kind of died down a little bit until it gained traction again with the death of Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. Ah, I was just going to say, that's the one, that's how I know what the 27 Club is, because that's when I first heard about it with him. Yeah, but it all started in the late 60s, early 70s, with pretty much within the space of a year, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. Right. Um. Weirdly, and I didn't, I, I didn't know this. So, so Cobain shot himself on the eighth of April, nineteen ninety-four, age twenty-seven. Two months after Kurt Cobain's death, fellow Seattle grunge musician Christian Path, who was a member of the band Hole, was found dead. Of course, the band Hole was led by Kurt Cobain's wife, Courtney Love. Yeah. Uh, age twenty-seven, the Hole musician Kirsten was found in her apartment dead from a heroin overdose. So. But Kurt Cobain, uh, I guess, is one of the more famous modern members of the 27 Club, but he wasn't the last iconic music star to be affected by the curse. In 2011, one of the most iconic singers of this millennium, Amy Winehouse, died at her London home, you guessed it, age 27. Right, yeah. Again, I, I guess you can hit back and statistically you know especially rock musicians drugs all that stuff are more likely to die early uh if you're going to die early you're going to die in your 20s they'll you statistically you could probably find a lot of major uh recording artists who i don't know if you pick 25 you know what i mean that you could find i think what's interesting about this story is how iconic all of these the main people were do you know what i mean brian jones a legend Jimi hendrix unique legend janice joplin jim morrison you know these are people who are just that kurt cobain and amy winehouse they they reached this level that was above you know, a normal status of a rock star into something more. And I think that connects them. And the fact they all died at 27 does make this story a little weird for me. Yeah. Well, I think the other interesting thing about the 27 Club is you have all of these um, sort of cultural influencers who come largely from the music industry. And then when you start really digging into it it does beget it does become a little bit creepy when you come across people like jade goody who also died right. at 27 yeah yeah and jade goody um i think you probably really only know her if 
you lived in the UK, but she was a reality television person. She was on Big Brother. And after her appearance on Big Brother, she was in a lot of uh, like celebrity magazines, your heats and whatever. And then when she was diagnosed with what killed her, which was cervical cancer, she became something of a a, a poster person for uh, getting yourself tested and yeah, cervical yeah. smears and stuff like that. But it was incredibly... It, it was a very sad day for everybody, even if you weren't into reality television. You didn't have to be to feel the pain of her death. And it was a it was a very impactful thing, so much so that uh, since her death, television companies have like produced documentaries on the anniversaries of her death to look into it. So it feels like there's this sort of peculiar 27 number which yeah. really impacts on people who have had the uh, i don't really know how to put it but they have put themselves forward as being cultural icons and i wonder whether th there is a um a sort of uh, a, uh, something to do with the fact that these people were either very creative or very forthright and their health i mean i think that's easier to argue for people who died um either through you know very sadly suicide like kurt cobain or through drug uh, misuse it's harder to argue for people like jay goody who died of cancer but yeah. there does seem to be a thing where all of these people uh, you know they were bringing something to society i suppose the other way that we should talk about this and look at it which is very difficult to do which is like how many people who were in inverted commas normal died at 27 how many yeah. people you know who just worked i say just worked i don't mean that in a derogatory way but people who worked um in the corner shop or yeah. you know in a call center died at 27 is there is there is there a correlation between putting yourself forward and having a cultural impact and dying or yeah. is it just that 27 seems like a very early age to die and yeah. it sticks in people's minds and if you were to record everybody that died at 27 you you would find that that is a common thing for when people right so you, you think problems. it might be statistically yeah i guess yeah, yeah that's an, that would be an interesting study wouldn't it i don't know people who are suffering from severe depression and either died of uh, either from suicide or drug overdoses or you know does it happen around that age where you're moving closer to moving out of your 20s into your 30s like this is all yeah you know surmising um but it, it, yeah, it, that would be interesting to look at as well as if you. I, I don't know music as I do. I don't think if you picked like the number twenty three, whether you'd come up with such a prestigious list of, uh, especially in the music business, performers, but uh, who had died at a different age. But I, I think that is an interesting theory. Is there something about that time of life that may make you more prone to 
either die of an overdose or suicide or something like that. I think that's interesting. Yeah, and I think the other thing about it is that because 27 is so young, so many of these people were contributing uh, so much to the culture at the time that like people, I think, feel very emotionally robbed when these people go. Like certainly... Kurt Cobain, that's the first one I remember. I know my dad remembers Jimi Hendrix going, and he was very upset about that. But I remember Kurt Cobain going and thinking, well, goodness me, Kurt Cobain is like 10 years older than me, and he's only achieved a fraction of what he could achieve. It's it's very, it's, it's incredibly sad. It's so much sadder than if he'd been 67 and go, well, you know, he yeah. he had you know fifty years to give us what he had yeah. when he only really had ten. It just has, yeah, no, it's really sad. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I guess Amy Winehouse a little bit like that as well. Who knows of where course, yeah. she she would have gone? I mean, I'm with you. I kind of I remember working. I was working for MTV when Kurt Cobain died. I remember being called up to come in and do like a, an obituary program for it. I was very upset and watching the MTV unplugged version of all apologies. It was like, Oh, it was so sad. Oh, I remember. That is you so know, sad. You, and that is such an incredible track. Yeah. But you listen to the lyrics of that. You're almost going, God, why didn't we know that this was going to happen? Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. 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 It's a very sad, uh, subject the 27 club for me because as you said ben there's some great artists who we were robbed of way too early i want to close looking at curses that are said to have been part of the movie industry and specifically focusing on horror films so whether it's just the hollywood marketing machine in overdrive or not, there does seem to be a lot of weird stuff connected with some of the scariest films ever made, especially, weirdly, some of my all-time favourite horror films. So let's start with The Omen. Oh, what a film that was. I, I, I don't know if you've seen it recently. I did watch it again a few months ago, the original Omen movie. It's still quite scary even now, even though it's dated a little bit. I don't know if you've seen it recently. I, I have, and I absolutely love it, yeah. If you've not seen it, why not? But the plot of this seminal horror film revolves around Damien, who is the son of the devil, and his earthly father who begins to realise that he could be the son of the devil as the film goes on. Now, there are a number of weird things connected with the film. One I wasn't aware of uh, until I dug a bit deeper was in June 1975, just two months prior to filming The Omen, lead actor Gregory Peck's son shot himself, which I didn't know, which is very sad. Uh, and must have, after two months to then, you know, be filming again within two months, that must have been quite a struggle for him, I would have thought, especially mm. given the topic of the film as well. Um, then, while flying to London in September, Peck's plane was struck by lightning. A few weeks later, executive producer Mace Newfeld was on a plane to Los Angeles that was also struck by lightning. 
After that, producer Harvey Bernhard narrowly escaped being struck by lightning while filming in Rome. He was quoted as saying at the time, the devil was at work and he didn't want that film made. So three cases of lightning strikes, which is weird in itself. An animal handler who helped with the crazy baboon scene in the 1976 film was mauled and killed by a tiger shortly after shooting wrapped. This is another weird one. A plane that was chartered by the film company but was switched out at the last minute. The original plane went down shortly after takeoff, killing everyone on board. That, Th- Go on. that is weird. But, um, it, 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 again, it seems coincidence rather than paranormal. It does. Th- this one... The next one I, I read and I, and I thought this can't be right and I tried to check with a couple of sources, but yeah. So this one, special effects artist John Richardson who helped with the film's infamous decapitation scene. I don't know if you remember that scene, but I think it's I the do. bit where the glass slides off and decapitates someone taking their head off. He was in a car crash during post-production. The crash happened on Friday the 13th. While Richardson survived this Friday the 13th crash, the head-on collision beheaded Richardson's passenger, his assistant Liz Moore, in a manner that was eerily similar to the death scene he helped shoot. Hmm. Richard reportedly saw a road sign near the accident scene showing the distance to a Dutch town that he was travelling to. It was called Omen, O-M-M-E-N, and the sign said 66.6 kilometres. Hmm. Which I'm not sure about that, because I don't think I've ever seen a sign that would show kilometres in a point. So I'm not. I, that doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, agreed, agreed. But the decapitation bit is very strange. Um, let's move on to Poltergeist. It's funny Poltergeist, the original Poltergeist. It's one of those movies that you think Steven Spielberg directed, but he didn't. It was actually directed by Tobe Hooper. Spielberg was originally set to shoot it, but I think he was working on E.T. or something at the time. So he didn't. Oh. But, you know, it's one of those... Same with Gremlins, right? You, you always think Steven Spielberg directed Gremlins. He produced it, but he didn't direct it. I, I honestly would have bet the farm on him uh, directing Boltgeist. Yeah. That's, that's quite a revelation. Uh, yeah. I've learned something. So who did direct it? Uh, a guy called Tobe Hooper. Oh. Uh, who'd okay. done some other horror film stuff. I think he was brought in as a, a, a replacement because I think, as far as I understand it, filming on E.T. was overrunning, so they needed somebody else to fill in for Spielberg. Okay. He was involved in it, but he he didn't direct it. Uh, So the original movie sees the Freeling family experience spooky goings-on at their home, culminating with their daughter being abducted by an evil poltergeist. There are further two movies in the original franchise. All All three films were marked by premature death. Many believe these deaths were a form of spiritual payback for the real corpses that they used as props in the infamous flooded pool scene of the first film. 
which again, I, I, I think I had heard that. I thought that was an urban myth, but apparently it is true. They did use real skeletons in as props in the in the flooded pool scene. Okay, which is weird in itself. Uh, the film's iconic lead, Heather O'Rourke, died aged twelve, less than a year after the release of Poltergeist Three. Uh, after what doctors thought was complications from flu-like symptoms. She died on the operating table after suffering cardiac arrest. Dominic Dunn, aged 22, who played the eldest daughter, Dana, in the original Poltergeist, died, died in late 1982 after being strangled by her abusive boyfriend, John Thomas Sweeney. Julian Beck, who played Kane, the evil preacher, died in 1985 during post-production on Poltergeist 2. In 2009, actor Lou Perryman, who played a construction worker in Poltergeist, met a gruesome end when he was axed to death in his home by an ex-convict. Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the medicine man and real-life shaman in the Greek... He was a real-life shaman in the Greek Native American tribe, died a year after Poltergeist 2. Uh, after being released of post-operative kidney failure. In 1992, actor Richard Lawson, who played Ryan in Poltergeist, survived a plane crash out of LaGuardia that killed 27 of the 51 people on board. So, I guess, multiple deaths and one close escape, really, there. I, I suppose... The counter argument or the the counter proposition is that there's working on those films. There's a lot of people. Yep, and stuff happens, right? And and stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've worked on things which you could not claim had any paranormal or spooky intent to them, but some pretty bizarre and hideous stuff happens. So yeah, I agree. Maybe it's just. Facts of life, but there's a couple more. Let's go on to The Exorcist. Uh, I guess you would argue it's the most famous and certainly one of the most important horror films of all time. Nine deaths are connected to the film, including Jack McGowan, who played Burke Dennings, Linda Blair's grandfather, uh, a night's watchman on set and a special effects expert. McGowan died one week after release of the movie. While on set, Ellen Burstyn suffered a permanent spinal injury when a stunt went wrong. I think it's that famous scene where she's thrown from the bed, but she was being pulled on a big rope. Although the you know freaking the director was pretty crazy guy. There's a there's a very famous story. There's there's a great scene where the priest has to turn round quickly, and uh, the director wasn't happy with the way he was doing it. So he got a real gun and fired it right by his head just to get him look shocked and surprised. So, you know, I think injuries yeah, injuries on the set are not uh are not too bizarre. Um well, okay, the entire set for the McNeil home caught fire and burnt down, delaying filming for six weeks. And Reagan's demonic bedroom was the only part of the set that remain untouched that's quite weird there were so many mishaps that, on is the pro- yeah, that is weird isn't it with all the mishaps the jesuit priest thomas m king from washington dc where the movie was being filmed was asked to come in and bless the set 
And during the film's Rome premiere, lightning struck a 400-year-old cross atop a nearby 16th century church. Oh, okay. I like lightning strikes. That's quite... There seems to be a theme coming yeah. on, and I certainly haven't worked on anything where there's been a lightning strike. So, uh, yeah. Let's move on to The Crow. I don't know, if you're a purist, you may not regard this as a horror film. I like to think of it as a kind of horror-stroke-superhero crossover genre. Uh, but the film famously starred Brandon Lee, son of Kung Fu and movie legend Bruce Lee. Uh, it's well known. While filming, Brendan Lee was shot and killed by a live bullet unknowingly lodged in a prop 44 caliber handgun. Which, again, is quite a terrible tragedy, obviously. But what makes it even more tragic and bizarre is that Bruce Lee died in 1973, so his father, shortly after making the film Game of Death in which he played an actor shot after a gangster replaces a fake bullet with a live one. Oh, so, okay. That's I didn't realise that. That's quite... So tricky. that's almost kind of, you know, life imitating art in that sense, I guess. It, it is. And also, just as an aside, it tells you how much, like, time warps. I had no idea he died in 1973. I, like... If I'd had to set a date, I would have said it was the early 90s. That's amazing. Considering that he died before I was born. Bruce Lee, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And and the impact and, like, the love of his films and stuff, I, like, I obviously haven't paid enough attention, but I thought he died later than that. Wow, okay. I mean, there is other weird stuff on the film, like, you know, people getting disasters, trucks catching fire... Uh, a carpenter going mad and ploughing through uh, a shop in his car, uh, a man, a stuntman being injured, somebody stabbed in the hand with a... You know, all kind of stuff that you would expect from a film production, especially that kind of film production. But I, I think that art, the, the life-imitating art bit of Bruce Lee starring in a film where... He, he dies in the film after somebody replaces a fake bullet with a live one and then his son, it happening to him during filming of his film is quite bizarre. <clears throat> it is quite bizarre, especially as, like, on the set of a film, that is going to be pretty, like, um, the safety measures, particularly because that's going to be an insured set, are going to be huge. Like, I've worked on, you know, just TV sets where to use a real knife, you have to employ a handler, you have to have uh, special protocols in place. It's not not taken lightly. Um, And you have to do all of this and tell the insurance company. So to do something where you swap a live bullet in for a dummy bullet into a gun that is actually working that is yeah, not bizarre. like that doesn't that it's a very strange accident to happen that does not feel like you know that can happen by accident i mean what the heck was a live bullet doing on set well not only that but i mean i guess the implication is it had got jammed or something but 
whichever way you look at it, even you would imagine that a prop gun wouldn't be able to fire real bullets full stop, wouldn't you? Yeah, right. Absolutely. You'd you'd imagine it would fire squibs. That's what yeah. I would think it would do. Yeah, that 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 you know. So there can be no mistaking what well, you know. Right. Yeah. 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 It's bizarre. Hmm. Um, that is bizarre. So, Rosemary's Baby. I guess you'd call that an art horror movie directed by Roman Polanski. Sees lead actress mm-hmm. Mia Farrow suspect her neighbours of being in a satanic cult and that they want to use her baby for their rituals. So obviously famously a year after the release of the film about evil descending upon an unexpected mother, members of the Charles Manson family murdered Polanski's wife Sharon Tate and her unborn child, her unborn child. Um after receiving death threats over the film's satanic themes, producer William Castle suffered kidney failure and was rushed to hospital. Car- Castle mentioned one particular letter which read, Bastard believers of witchcraft, worship her at the shrine of Satism. My prediction is you will slowly rot during a long and painful illness which you have brought upon yourself. Castle raged that the movie was cursed, repeatedly crying out during his illness. Rosemary, for God's sake, drop that knife. Unbeknown to Castle, the film's composer, 38-year-old Christoph Kamida, had been admitted to the same hospital due to a blood clot. Kamida's death was the result of a brain hematoma, early, eerily reminiscent of that that befell Hutch in the film. So that's quite interesting. So... The producer of the film is in hospital with this illness after somebody predicted that would happen to him. And he didn't know that pretty much at the same time the film composer, uh, who was only 38, was admitted to hospital with a blood clot and died. I guess they might, if they live in Hollywood, they might go to the same hospital, but still that is a little weird. That is... (laughs) <laughs> that is quite weird yes yes and there appears to be a lot of in that one a lot of circumstances around it which sort of conspire to make the event happen if you see what i mean yeah well i think what's interesting about that story is it's not the biggest stretch to you know a lot of these you're kind of stretching what happens and it has no seems to have no direct relevance with the film but i think in the case of that movie and uh what happened to sharon tate there are a lot of uh themes that do tie into the movie which makes it particularly weird i think yeah i agree i agree that is um that's weird so where where do you come out on this do you feel like that there is something paranormal happening here, or do you think it is just that case of things stand out because these people are well-known and, you know, it's films and such? You know what, I... uh, This is a classic... A classic quantum mechanics podcast one for me. Because my gut Mm. instinct is to be sceptical 
a bit like we talked about with Toon Cummins team <clears throat> that actually you know statistics with these ones the movie ones kind of bits of it remind me of the Toon Cummins thing that actually statistically as you said things happen on sets whether they be of horror films or not I think where it gets a little weird is you then get that little bit of of the thing that we talk about on the quantum mechanics where you go yeah I'm being skeptical about all this but actually that little bit's weird do you know what I mean like the decapitation bit in that happened to the stunt uh, the special effects guy in the omen or in this case what happened with Sharon Tate and there are just little bits or multiple lightning strikes which feel less coincidental than something bad happening on set. You know, like I said, yeah. there's bits in that story where somebody hurt, a stuntman hurt his back. Well, yeah, stuntmen must hurt their back all the time. Somebody got stabbed while building the set because they put, a, you know, run a screwdriver into their hand. Well, that must happen all the time. But three, yeah. three people who are involved in the production within a short space of time being involved with lightning strikes that is quite weird yeah yeah well whilst we've been talking about this and you get onto films there is one thing between two actors which i think well to me it's paranormal so this reminds me of the conversation between Sir Alec Guinness and James Dean in relation to his car, his Porsche, which it was uh, sort of known as Little Bastard. Yes, well, we did. We mentioned this in the Object of Evil one. You're right, we have discussed this in the past, but... Um, just very briefly, this relates to, it was uh, in 1977 when Alec Guinness was on the BBC's Parkinson talk show. And he relates this conversation that happened in uh, 1955 when he had been invited by James Dean to join him at a table in a restaurant and James Dean was showing off his car and Alec Guinness describes and and he actually says this uh, strange thing came over him and he says this is direct quote some almost different voice said look I won't join your table unless you want me to but I must say something please do not get into that car because if you do and he then says, I looked at my watch and I said, if you get into that car at all, it's now Thursday, 10 o'clock at night. And by 10 o'clock at night next Thursday, you'll be dead if you get into that car. Yeah. And that <laughs> is that for me every time. So that that is um, available on YouTube. Like I won't necessarily give a link to it because there's various people who've taken that. And it's probably BBC copyright. So you should just search it. But uh, that, to me, adds credibility to the fact that I feel like for all the stories you've told, there is something about people with a creative mind and a creative ability perhaps being more open to things and therefore 
like that is why not only because they're in the public eye do we notice their demise and their problems when they get uh, you know killed or whatever but also they're more sensitive to it and so they feel it and i think that um example there with alec guinness is is fairly staggering yeah definitely well that whole story about james dean and the car so uh, as ben said we have we've have talked about that story before so if you do want to hear the full story of that if you check out we did an episode called objects of evil and we do cover a bit more about the car because there are other weird bits about the car aren't they not just the alec guinness prediction but i agree with you there is something around that creative connection i don't know if you'd call it or some kind of force going on which i think is interesting with that and weirdly in terms of connections and creative force i i don't think you were aware of this but the the last movie i wanted to talk about uh was the conjuring and the conjuring we talked about uh the warrens and the annabelle doll in the same episode i think it was pretty much either the story before or after we talked about uh, James Dean and uh, Alec Guinness, right? So there is a weird mm. connection there. Yeah. What I quite like to do with this one, Ben, is because you asked a really good question. It's like, where where am I sitting with this? And I said, you hear bits and go, eh. And then you hear other bits and go, ooh, that's a bit weird. I think... I'm going to list some of the stuff that's associated with the movies The Conjuring and maybe both of us can go, meh, or weird. How about that? Like it, do it. Okay, so uh, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the movies. They're based on the experience of real-life paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. when we've done the Annabelle doll before the real story with the Warrens and the Annabelle doll, which is more chilling than the movie, which is pretty damn scary anyway. But let's focus on the curse of the Conjuring movie or movies. So, director James Wan may have been playing with things beyond his control when he shot the Conjuring about the evil force taunting the Perron family uh, and the real-life demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. When members of the real-life Perron family visited the set, they were met by a gust of fierce wind, and while the Perrons were being pushed back by this wind, Mother Carolyn, who was not with them, felt a presence back at their home and then suffered a bad fall. Is that... or is that weird? I'm trying to... I'm trying to make up my mind. Um, it depends which way you come at it. Okay, I like as my brain is going. I think as forty, sorry, fifty-one percent weird. I'll I'll fall on weird, but just I I yeah, just I feel well, like I, te- I tell you what's weirder about it is I think you don't need the gust of fierce wind. I think the fact that members of the family... <laughs> yeah, hey. <I> th- <laughs> We've all had a veggie we, yeah, curry. Yeah, sorry. I had lots of beans tonight. Um, I think what's weirder is the fact that while the Perrons, who the story uh, was loosely based on, were visiting the set, the mother, who wasn't with them, felt a presence and then suffered a fall. 
I don't think you need yeah. the win. There, there is something weird about that. Okay, yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Okay. But I, I, I think the only thing I would say is, did she feel a presence in in uh, like hindsight? Or if she'd right. said that before, would do you know she, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good yeah. point. Okay, next one. Shortly after that incident, the cast and crew had to evacuate their, evacuate their hotel due to a fire. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll say weird. Really? Yeah, I think I'm so. Go- I'm going uh, on that. Okay. All right, this one. Phone calls between the screenwriter and Lorraine Warren always suffered static and often went dead. Uh, nah. No. I, I've had the same with my grandmother in the 80s. Yeah. No, I, don't, yeah. I don't think that's weird. Well, we struggle to get the Zoom working sometimes, so maybe not. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. when working late one night, director Wan's dog wouldn't stop growling for no apparent reason. My dog will growl anything. Yeah, yeah, so will mine. My dog sometimes just looks out into the distance and starts barking. I've got no idea what he's barking at. So yes, Uh, yeah, completely. That's that's a daily occurrence in our household. Yes, that's just that. That's dogs. Yeah, that is literally dogs. Yeah. So yeah, no. Next one: the laptop screen of lead actress Vera Farminga allegedly and mysteriously showed digital claw marks one day when she opened her computer. The actress also showed off photos in interviews of what appeared to be claw marks on her thigh after filming concluded on the movie. I mean, uh, what's the meme, big if true? I mean, yes, if that's true, weird. Yeah, I agree. Um, If, If it's PR hype... Uh, if it's true, weird. Especially yeah. the digital claw marks. Yes. Digital claw marks are the hardest claw marks for me to accept. Okay. So we move on to the Annabelle film, the one about the doll, which we did cover in the Objects of Evil episode, so go back and check that yeah. out. Um, so, on the day of the 2014 film... Uh, so on the day where the film's demon went into full makeup, so there'd been rehearsals and partial makeup, but the first time the demon in the film was made up fully, there was an on-site injury. As the actor walked into the green room made up as the demon, producer Peter Safran described a lighting fixture abruptly falling and striking a janitor's head. In the film itself, the demon kills a janitor in that same hallway. Uh, gosh, again, I think that's tentative. Like, I may be 52% positive on that, but... I'm, go- I'm going pretty weird on that one. I think the fact okay. that first time in full demon makeup, it's a bit like that thing where where it's connected to the narrative of the film, I find that weird. Yeah, okay. And the Fair location. Enough. Okay. Okay, you might have persuaded me up to 60%. Okay, fine. Okay, this is the last one. While, okay. fi- while filming Annabelle, director John Linetti 
discovered a three-finger marking clawed across a dusty set window. Eerily, the film's demon also has just three fingers. Uh, I, I, I think that's really difficult because, like, people often use just three fingers for doing things or it could, or it could be a prank that somebody's played yeah i'm i'm not so convinced on that one yeah no i'm i'm shrugging my shoulders at that no i'm i'm going with the um the janitor being struck on the head as that's in in, in the conjuring stories i think that's the one that makes me go oh that's a bit weird okay I think that's the one that I came out highest on. So let's let's agree and go with that one. I'm with you. But I, I I agree with you on these. You know, I've worked on a number of production and sets. Stuff happens all the time. I just also wonder whether for the people involved in horror films, that stuff takes on an exaggerated significance. Do you know what I mean? Let yeah. alone that these stories and rumours don't hurt the film's reputation and box office takings and... I'm sure there's the odd PR person who hypes them up a bit or says, oh, yeah, no, I know it was slightly weird. And we talked about this in uh, the ghost stories in theatres the other week, that even if there is some weirdness, the nature of actors and creative people is maybe to enhance and ham it up a little bit, if not deliberately, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, like, when we're talking horror films and stuff, it's... You know, it, it, as long as the person who is the victim comes out of it okay, you know, they're not actually dead, then it's fairly harmless, isn't it? And it does enhance the whole thing. Like, when we were at school, everybody was absolutely convinced there was a ghost that you could see in uh, Three Men and a Baby. And, like... Oh, I know that story, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it isn't a ghost and there is a very good explanation for the fact it's just a uh, cardboard cutout that was part of a storyline that was dropped. But before the days of the internet in the early 90s, like, it made us all rent that film. So it does have, like, a a fiscal positivity to it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, again, on all these stories, I think the to to summarise, I think the the tomb coming, the Egyptian stuff, it's almost become such a cliche. I can see where it's come from because certainly with the uh, with all the people who died and the stories around it, it does read like a film script, even though it was a real life incident. So, but I think statistically we're pretty much saying stuff shit happens right um yes i think the gillette one is just a number of bad marketing misfortunes at the 27 thing i think sticks with me quite a lot because mm. I, I like your theory about is that is there something intrinsically about humans about that age that that especially for creatives and musicians and people like that that would make it statistically more likely that something like a drug overdose or a suicide would happen i think it's really interesting and the horror films yeah 
I think there are bits of weirdness in those stories that give me a slither of hope of something paranormal in there. But I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is just stuff that happens. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. It does make me think, I did stay at the, say at the start of this episode, that these are more, you know, wider, far-reaching curses rather than, you know, man or woman being cursed by you know someone in the street uh what's that there's a stephen king book which i think it's not under his name he wrote it under a, a ghost name called thinner i don't know if you've ever read that about oh a, no i haven't come the, across that it's no. a very short short story but it's very good it's about a guy who uh i was gonna say accidentally his wife was doing something to him in a car which she shouldn't have been doing which he was enjoying and he accidentally kills a child and the child's mother curses him uh, and he starts losing weight and he's an overweight guy so at first it's it's really well written story because at first he's thinking oh I'm loving this I'm eating everything I like and I'm still losing weight but as he gets thinner and thinner and thinner it starts to he starts to realize that it is a curse and he has to try and lift the curse it's it's a really great story but I, I wonder whether, actually, for the next time we look at this subject, we should focus on those individual stories. So I think the problem with these wider-ranging ones are the statistical anomaly bits of it, are the fact that some of these things are shoehorned in to fit a narrative, whereas one person's story that you can maybe connect with the original curse might be... Uh, might be more interesting to delve into a bit deeper or, yeah. or less easy to say no that can't be paranormal yeah than, than agreed. Maybe some maybe some of these are perfect good well it'd be interesting to see what you think about this topic out there i think we're coming We've come across, again, if we're doing our percentages, we've come across probably 70% sceptical, 30% wiggle room for a bit of paranormal. It'd be interesting to see whether you agree. Yes. And whether you've got any stories about um, sort of uh, cursed showbiz that we haven't come across, maybe in a country that we don't hear, you know, too much about here in our sort of bubble of the uk and i guess america like do these things occur on japanese movies for example or yeah, korean yeah, movies that yeah. would be really good to hear about and yeah yeah uh we'd love to hear those stories is there a k-pop equivalent of the 27 club that'd be good yes exactly yes yeah, yeah definitely all right well uh make sure you check us out on social media at tqm podcast mm -hmm. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe and recommend to other people because that really, really helps us. Out. It absolutely, and can I just add, it does really help us. So if you could just tell one other person about us and show where we are on their podcatcher, yeah, really appreciate it. It would help us keep the show going. And uh, this is just, it's just the two of us. It's all self-funded. Yeah. So anything you can do just to get, uh, another listener or two really really helps our cause we'll send out a positive curse to you if you do 
yes, curse, an anti-curse. An anti-curse of, of happiness. Yes. Like, you'll wake up in the morning and there'll be Kit Kats in your shower. <laughs> Rather than real cats. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, no. You know what real cats in the shower? They hate water. Yeah, exactly. But Kit Kats, like, oh, imagine eight chocolatey fingers. <laughs> On that note, we'll see you next time. <laughs> see you next time. Bye. the quantum mechanics